so should we just jump right into it? Uh, well, I mean, it's up to you. I guess you are the host, so you tell me how we do this. Well, um, I think that we should start with George Streisinger, right after we introduce the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the show about science. This is your host, Nate. We've got lots to talk about today. So let's jump right in. Okay, so I think we said we were beginning with George Streisinger, right? Right, George Streisinger. So he's the founder in many ways of zebrafish genetics. Zebrafish genetics. So he was the first to realize that uh, zebrafish would be an excellent genetic model organism. And he was the one who actually put in the years and the effort to make it a model organism. This is Mate Varga, and he is one of two scientists that we'll be talking about, well, lots of things really, but I think we'll begin with the fish that fascinated George Streisinger, the zebrafish. So we don't really know why he exactly chose zebrafish. So we knew that, you know, he was involved in fish research when he was in his early teens and he was living in New York at that time. But there are still anecdotal stories that go around in the fish community, whether it was completely by accident. He went down just to the pet shop and, you know, he wanted to use zebrafish because that was the first species that he spotted in the local pet shop. I mean, obviously, pet shops like spotty zebrafish and, you know, zebrafish that are completely absent of pigmentation. So they were selling those uh, mutants as well, mutant lines as well. Or some people think that his earlier work when he was working with fish uh, made him, you know, aware that there are a number of advantages for zebrafish. So it was much more like a conscious choice. We don't know, but he did end up choosing zebrafish, which became the most popular fish species in the terms of um, genetic research for the foreseeable future. I see. So how have zebrafish been such a good model for like humans so the interesting thing was that for most model organisms there is some serendipity why they were chosen and so people have been studying fish for quite some time during the 20th century and they did a lot of interesting experiments but in order to have a genetic model organisms you have to tick a couple of boxes so you have to have something that's small something that's pretty cheap to actually keep because you have to have hundreds or not, if not thousands of fish in your animal facility. And that's obviously something that can be very, very expensive. So zebrafish was both small and cheap to maintain. And also uh, it has a number of very obvious advantages. So being a fish, actually the fertilization is external. So, you know, you can watch all the embryos developing in a petri dish, which is not necessarily the case for a mouse. So zebrafish, in many ways, was a lucky choice. It turned out as, you know, more than, I would say, 70% of the genes that are present in the human genome, they have clear zebrafish equivalent, which, you know, wasn't clear at the time when George Streisinger chose zebrafish to become a model organism. But we do know that now because we have both the human genome and we do have the zebrafish genomes and we can compare them and find these genes in them. So by having so many similarities between the two genomes, it also means that many of the developmental processes that happen in zebrafish 
are the same that would happen in a human embryo during development as well. And once people recognize this, then, you know, you could find the same genes that, you know, are important in human development in a zebrafish embryo, disrupt them and see what goes wrong during the early stages of that developmental process. And so you could learn a lot uh, just by looking at these actually quite cute zebrafish embryos during the early stages of their development about how development in a vertebrate or actually particularly in a human happens as well. So that was, I think, the selling point for many of the researchers who became involved with zebrafish. We may never know why Dr. Streisinger chose zebrafish, but because he did, our knowledge of one of the most important things in human history was forever changed. So it was an indirect discovery. Uh, a lot of science is serendipitous, that is, a little bit by accident. This is my second guest, Keith Chang, who studies cancer at the Penn State College of Medicine. So I'm doing cancer research. Put yourself in this position. All right. You're doing cancer research. You realize this thing. Yes. And it has to do with the phenotype in humans. Yeah. That has as important an impact on the history of humanity and on how people are treated in all of modern history. Wow. You think it's important or not? Important. Okay. So you know what people were telling me? What? Now, Keith, you've got to not do that. That's not focused on your research. What? Hmm, let's see. Forever mystery of humanity versus this thing. Maybe I should do it anyway. And that's what I did. Okay, we need to back up. Keith uses zebrafish in his cancer research. And we'll get to that. But first, I think that we need to understand a few terms, starting with phenotype. Okay, phenotype, that is what you see as a scientist, the phenotype. What you see as a scientist. What a doctor sees in a patient, that's all phenotype. When you look at me, I have a phenotype, right? When I right. look at you, you have a phenotype. Yeah. So those are phenotypes, that's what we see or measure. You know, if you want to get fancy, you can have fancy phenotypes if you want to go and do an EKG and measure your heart rate or something. That's also a phenotype, so all that's phenotype. Okay, so phenotypes. That's traits or characteristics that you can see or measure. Got that? Okay, good. Next, we need to learn about melanosomes and melanocytes. Okay, so the cells that contain melanin are called melanocytes. Melano for melanin. Melanin, which is a dark pigment. And that pigment is containing these tiny little containers called melanosomes. Think of it this way. The melanosomes are a bunch of little cannonballs, if you will, or water balloons inside of the pigmented cells. I told you the pigmented cells are melanocytes, cyto for cell. And then the melanosomes, soma for body. So melanosomes are the pigmented balls. Now there could be more of them. There could be lots of them. There could be bigger ones versus smaller ones, right? And the amount of paint inside, if you will, the amount of pigment in there could be changed. So those three things determine how light or dark skin color is. How light or dark skin color is. Now, you're probably thinking, what does all of this have to do with zebrafish and cancer? Well, we're getting there. 
Once again, this is Dr. Chang. Uh, we were utilizing the zebrafish for our cancer research because it's a vertebrate and uh, you can watch all of development under a microscope very easily. And um, the founder of the field found that these fish happened to start out with a plain pale egg and then some cells start to pigment up in the second day of development and it gets more mature, gets darker over time. And some only some cells get dark, of course. Huh. You know, it is a little bit analogous to the human situation. So we have light-skinned people like yourself, and uh, we have dark-skinned people. And it turns out there are black-haired white people, right? Right. So they have pigmentation. It's just lighter. So that's very much like this fish that this guy found. So I was studying cancer as a phenotype. I was using pigmentation as a easier-to-score phenotype reasoning that, well, we know now that cancer is a disease where genes become mutant. So if you will, our cells live by laws. It tells the cells what to do. Like all the genes in your genome or an ant's genome or a plant's genome make them the way they are. It's an incredible miracle. That's the miracle of genetics. How in the world does this string of DNA sequence make us look the way we look? Isn't that an interesting thing? Yeah. That's a wonderful thing that has evolved over millions of years, and that's what we have. So I was studying cancer, and it turned out we had this dark fish, and I was looking for mutants that uh, would lose the one gene and become pale. So you've seen uh, like uh, kitchen tiles. Let's say you had a bunch of kitchen tiles and they were all black. If you took one and made it white, you'd see it really easily, wouldn't you? Yeah, it would be like the one that definitely catched my eye really fast. Right. You could see it really fast. So now if you think of a cancer gene and it loses its function, well, the cell's not going to say, hey, I'm a cancer cell. You don't know that until it grows, right? But you know when a cell's lost its pigment gene, hey, I'm pale. You go, hey, you're, yeah, I see that. So that's what I was studying in the fish. Ah. So it's telling me by being pale that it's lost the function of that gene and it's analogous to losing a function of a gene important in keeping cancer at bay. Oh. You may someday hear the word tumor suppressor gene. And it means like what you may imagine the words mean. <laughs> tumor is cancer. Suppressor, keep it down. Tumor suppressor gene. And if you lose the tumor suppressor gene function, oops, the cancer starts coming up. So this is what I was studying. Ooh. So how did you um, figure out what gene was the gene that was responsible for human skin pigment? So... And I, as I told you earlier, it was an accident. And it was an accident because I wasn't intending to study the mechanisms of human pigmentation. But for the cancer research purposes, when you're studying cancer genes, there are cancer genes that you need both copies to work. And if you lose the function of that gene, it will make you susceptible to cancer. There are alleles, there are variants of each gene. This version of the gene that function this way has this phenotype and that 
form of the gene that's the same gene. We all inherit the same gene, does another thing. And if you're studying pigment, the same thing can happen. So if you start out, say, with dark and light copies of the gene, this is in the body cells. You're born with one of each, but then some of your cells lose the good copy. And then you become mutant then in your appearance. You become lighter color. And uh, so I wanted to study the cells and look by electron microscopy, which is the power you needed to see the organelles well. And I asked, well, what happened to the monosomes? Now remember, there are three things that could happen to those cannonball water balloon monosomes. One, there could be more of them. More of them? Two, there could be bigger ones versus smaller ones. Bigger ones versus smaller ones, right? Right. And three, the amount of pigment in each monosome, or more precisely, the concentration or density of pigment, could be changed. The amount of pigment in there could be changed. Now, each of the melanocytes, the cells, were lighter in the mutant fish. And I didn't know why. Uh Uh-huh. So we looked. We fixed the embryos, and we looked under electron microscope, and... I thought one of those three things would change, their number or their size or the amount of pigment inside. Any of those I could see. Guess what? All three things changed. Exactly. That's exactly what I said. I said, well, hmm, why is that? And then I said, well, geez, what about humans? So we looked in the literature at what changes in those melanosomes in light versus dark skinned humans. You know what the difference was? What? All three changes. Oh. Oh. So the same things changed in European skin. So I go, what? Is it possible that the same gene is affected in humans as these fish? <gasps> That's what happened to me. I literally started to sweat when I opened the textbook of dermatology. Dermatology is a specialty for studying skin, right? So I ran over to my colleague's office across the hall, who's a dermatologist, and I, you know, looked at the index and I found the table that compared the melanosomes of different colored people. And Europeans had all three changes. So on the spot, I said, that gene is going to be changed in this fish. Ooh. <laughs> But I didn't know what the gene was yet. So imagine my, like, I'm excited, but ah, I got to find this gene now. So I went and found this gene and it took over 10 years. It took me to find this stupid gene. Wow. But uh, really some of the most important aspects of this is the coincidence that this pet store fish had this mutation in a gene that was the same gene that was responsible for a lot of the difference, not all of it, most of the difference between African and Europeans. We all share the same gene that influences whether we have light skin or dark skin. What this means is at a genetic level, we're all way more similar than we are different. So there's a lot to think about here, especially at this moment. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Mate Varga was because of an article he wrote about George Streisinger. In it, he talked about George's commitment to the civil rights movement, and it made me wonder, what would George have thought about Dr. Chang's discovery? Right. 
I think probably he would have been very much excited. For a scientist, it's always nice to see that your work actually leads to important results. Uh, but also, as you said, like he was a very active person in, in the civil rights movement as well at that time. And so I think it would have made him feel good about it because it just shows that how superficial differences between humans can be. So obviously now we are close to a consensus that uh, the idea of race is a human created or made category. And the more we learn about human pigmentation and see how trivial that is and has nothing to do with these old concepts of race, I think that would actually have made Professor Streisinger quite happy about uh, a contribution coming from his model organisms to this uh, debate. So if race is more of a human-made category or idea, like Mate says, then perhaps the way we think about it needs some rethinking. As far as understanding ourselves and in today's political climate, there's one evolutionary trait of humans that is actually conserved in all social animals that we need to realize. I call it group centrism. Other people call it tribalism. What I'd like to see in the future, and I think we can get there, but it's going to take a while. We have to realize that we're all group-centric. All of us, no exceptions. So nobody can pretend they're better than anybody else. We're all that way. And if we want to live together and work together and be greater because we're working together, we actually have to realize that weakness and say we're going to teach each other train ourselves and educate each other so that we no longer are as susceptible to that tribalism. That's the key to the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There you have it, folks. The show about science is complete. A very special thank you to Keith Chang and Mate Varga for being on the show. Our theme song was written by Jeff Dan and Teresa Brooks. Additional music on this episode comes from Epidemic Sound. If you want to hear more episodes, make sure to visit theshowaboutscience.com. Thanks for listening, and Dad, you can shut the recording off. All right, so I have two important announcements before we end this episode. The first one is that I have a brand new website called AmazingMiniStories.org. It's a great site for kids and adults who want to read some great short stories. And there is a new option to write your own short story. And if it is accepted, it will be posted on the website. More information is at AmazingMiniStories.org or you can find it at the link in the description. And a quick PSA before we go. Dr. Chang wanted me to let everyone know that prolonged exposure to the sun can lead to skin cancer. And people of European background are more susceptible to sun-induced skin cancers than darker-skinned people. That's why sunscreen and other protection from the sun is so important for light-skinned people. All right, thank you so much for listening to these important announcements.